Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camping out for the, uh, our time this morning. Uh, Randy uh, and Bart asked me, uh, gave me a couple dates to preach this summer. Uh, Bart's on vacation. We haven't heard about any shark attacks yet, uh, which... It's really good, and we're, we're praying against that. Uh, but Bart and Randy gave me a couple of dates. The, the first date they gave me was, um, hey, can you preach on July 2nd, which is next weekend. Uh, that week uh, happens to be when we are going to be loading up a bus and going to camp uh, right after church. And I was like, ah, I don't know if that's a really good idea, um, but, but maybe. Well, what's the other date? And they said July 23rd, and that happens to be the due date of Maddie and I's uh, second kiddo. Um, and so I thought for a second, should I call Maddie and ask her opinion? <laughs> and like, th that was like 10 seconds. Uh, and then it was immediately like, I'll, I'll take July 2nd. Uh, but it just worked out where, uh, where me and Randy were able to switch and, and I'm able to speak with y'all this morning. And I'm incredibly excited about that. So we're in this series called Things I Wish I'd Known, and I was really giving a lot of thought to this since we were planning this series. What, what are some things that I wish I had known? And, and thinking about the different stages of my life in which I would look back and go, before I crossed that threshold, what, what was it that I wish I had known? What wisdom do I wish I had with me? So I thought about, you know, um, you know when I got married, uh, what, what were things that I wish I'd known before then? Uh, for preparing afterward, and, and when I became a dad, when um, I became a youth pastor, when I, when I turned 30, all these different stages of life in which I wondered, what, what are, what's the wisdom that I, I was supposed to get and hoped that I had gotten? And then I came to the realization that a lot of the times when I say, man, I wish I had known that, there's probably somebody that could have said, I told you so. <laughs> Because for all those things that I wish I had known, they really are more than likely things I wish I hadn't ignored. <laughs> and, and here's what I mean. Uh, so over the summer, I try to plan several events for the teenagers, um, lots of uh, activities and stuff like that. And one of the things we've been doing for the past couple of years is... Um, uh, planning a lot of Thursday mornings, we would go out and play something, some sort of sport or something like that. So we've played ultimate Frisbee. Uh, we've played sand volleyball before. We even did a, a disc golf tournament last year and, and just get outside, have some fun, get some exercise. Um, uh, a lot of the students think it's too early because uh, it's 10 a.m. and that's way too early. Uh, uh, by that time, I've already been up for like three or four hours. So um, but this past week, we decided to play some basketball. And so we were out at Willow Creek Park playing basketball. And um, I discovered two things. One is that there is no sport that I play that makes me sweat as profusely as basketball. In fact, uh, Trinity Key uh, pointed it out to me very graciously, uh, who, was, who was playing keys up here this morning. He, uh, um, I, was, I was blocking him and uh, kind of boxing him out. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're sweaty. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, that's kind of like my defensive tactic. Like, you don't want to be near me. That's how I get space to shoot. Um, but the other thing I realize when playing basketball is that unless I am trying to go for a layup or unless I am like 
right under the basket, I have no chance. <laughs> like I, have, I have zero shot. Um, everything is just a prayer that I'm hurling up there if I'm anywhere away from the basket. And this is bizarre to me because it's not like I, I didn't have people at, when I was growing up saying, hey, you need to work on your jump shot. Like I got that a lot. In fact, we had a basketball goal in front of my house and my, me and my brothers would go out and we would play all the time in the summers. And yet I would always just go for the easy shot right under the basket. My, my dad had a really good jump shot, or at least he would say a shot, like he would inform you that there was no jumping involved. Um, but he had the, the, a great shot and he, he could just post up and, and just uh, find a little spot in the corner of the court and just hit it over and over and over again. But I never took the time to, to, to see the need for that. And then uh, we had a next-door neighbor who, was all, who taught me how to shoot, showed me how to hold the ball, and, and how, how to have a really good motion. And I remember those things, but I never put that into practice. So now I could look back and say, I wish I had known when I was a kid how to, to shoot a jump shot. But I, I did know. I was told. I just didn't listen. So, so many times this happens. Another example would be I had a friend uh, of mine when he was turning 30. He was, he's like uh, about 10 years older than me. When he was turning 30 and I'm just kind of getting into my 20s, he's like, Kyle, listen to me. Something happens when you turn 30 to your metabolism. Like he goes, I don't know what it is. It just starts, that, that bell curve of our metabolism starts just slowly turning. And, and, and you're not going to be able to recover as quickly from all your, your poor eating habits and, and lack of exercise choices. And I, I didn't listen to that, obviously. Um, I didn't, no, I, I didn't, didn't listen to that because what I was seeing at the time was like, I can eat like, uh, like an insane person where I just eat everything that I want um, and then make a decision in a week's time, be back to whatever weight I, I really desire by just saying, oh, I guess I'll, I'll cut back. Things that I wish I'd known so often become things that I wish I hadn't ignored. And so I love this book in 1 Timothy because in 1 Timothy, we, and 2 Timothy as well, these letters that Paul writes, Paul has such great care and concern for Timothy. He talks as a guy who's been there and done that, and, and he desperately wants to see Timothy succeed. There's an urgency to his words, partly because he's knowing that these are some of the last words he's going to be able to share with Timothy. But also, also, because he knows that the gospel is not something we can wait on. Our call to share the gospel is not something we can just wait patiently for to come to us. There has to be this urgency there. So there's wisdom that we wish we hadn't brushed off. And I think Paul is desperately wanting Timothy to realize this. Don't brush this off. Don't, don't push this aside. This is stuff you need to know and put into practice now. Last week, Bart decided to make everyone cry with a visual representation of how little time we have left with our kids. And I'm, I'm so mean to my wife. I immediately got out my calculator and like put in the numbers. I'm like, look, it's like around like, like we're, we're around 800 weeks left with, with Walter. I know that's a lot, but it also isn't. 
I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so mean. I do that all the time to her because I, I, I really shouldn't. But uh, when he turned two, I'm like, you know what? Wow, he turned two? That's like halfway to four. Which is like, <laughs> that's like a quarter of the way to 16. He's almost driving. Like he's just, um, and, and so I, I do that to her way, way too. I'm so rude. Uh, I, I totally uh, understand that. Um, but when I was sitting there thinking, thinking about that, I started thinking of the parents of the teenagers in our, our student ministry who, when, when they look at that counter, they see 54, 104, 156, you know, one, two, three years left with their, their teenager in, uh, before they turn 18. And that number can be discouraging if we think of it as, I don't have enough time. There's not enough time. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm out of opportunities. But that's not the case because God isn't done. And there's plenty of time left for change to start now. Change can start now, but we have to be willing to put forth the effort in more than just in um, our relationship with our kids, but in our spiritual well-being and our pursuit of Christ in life. So with that in mind, with that charge on our hearts, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to um, start in verse 6. And we're picking up in the middle of a completion of a thought. Paul was just writing a section warning against uh, those who would fall away from the faith or those who are false teachers of a legalism doctrine of you have to do this extra stuff to get Jesus. And he, Paul's warning against that. And then he gives an instruction to Timothy in verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to pass this warning along. Pass it along to those he leads and he serves with. Paul is introducing this concept of training that, that is so incredibly important to the remainder of this chapter. He says that you should be, be trained in the words of the faith. And so this idea of training is going to continue to pop up through this chapter. What Paul is saying here is that we can ill afford having leaders of the faith who are forgetting such fundamental truths. Like we can't have that. We can't have leaders who are forgetting what God has called them to. And so the argument can be made, okay, well, is he just talking to leaders in the church? And yes, there's a certain weight to those who are called to vocational ministry here. Uh, clearly, Timothy is, is taking on a leadership role in the church. And so there's um, this, this language there from Paul to Timothy that is specifically for those who are leaders. But this echoes to all of us. Because no matter where we think we are in, in this world— we are leading someone. Every single one of us are leading someone. If you're a parent, that, that answer is obvious. You're called to lead your children well. In your workplace, think about who watches you, who responds when you are, are leading or you are, are giving a charge. In our church, in your neighborhood, in your group of friends and family, we, we are leading someone. And you might think, well, what if I'm, I'm a new believer in Christ? 
I'm new to all of this. How am I possibly leading anyone? And it's not like a food chain. But what we have to realize is when we are brought into this family, we are uh, the adopted sons and daughters of God. We are clothed with his righteousness. And because of that, we are placed as a light in a broken and fallen world. We have people to lead and plenty of them. People who need to hear the gospel. So this is a charge to all of us that we lead and teach well. And we train in the words of the faith. We train ourselves. Paul is saying it is important to keep teaching and keep growing. It shows that we are servants of the Most High God. And so we need to be actively working to protect ourselves from the lies of the enemy by training in our faith. And so that's what he's setting up in verse 7. So in verse 7 it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's that word training again. Whenever you see rather, obviously, in a sentence, it means we have a contrast here. We have two things that are opposed to one another. We have irreverent, silly myths. Train yourselves in godliness. That's the contrasting points here. So it's important for us to understand what Paul is saying when he says irreverent, silly myths. To say irreverent is to suggest that it's not God-seeking, not God-honoring. Something that is self-seeking more than likely. To say silly implies a foolishness and myths suggest folklore, something that's man-created to explain something in this world. The New Living Translation says it this way, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourselves to be godly. So, there's several suggestions of what Paul uh, could be referring to throughout this letter. He's obviously pointing back to these ideas of uh, a legalistic doctrine and, and things like that that are earlier in this chapter and earlier in this letter. But this idea of avoiding irreverent, silly myths speaks to any culture and any age. Here's what I mean. Um, can I be honest about one silly myth that I find myself drawn to? Um, even I don't mean to think about it, um, but say I was driving down 820, and I'm just realizing, I think this is like the third time I've done an illustration that might kind of uh, talk about road rage, so maybe I need to work on that. Um, <laughs> but so say I'm driving down 820, and as I'm driving, somebody comes speeding up behind me and just gets right on my tail, and this really gives me anxiety. It makes me really frustrated, and that person um, is not happy with the speed that I am going, uh, is, is what is implied when they zoom around me and give some sort of gesture. Um, so as they zoom off into the distance, I can't see them anymore, um, I find myself just hoping, just hoping there's a cop further up. <laughs> Anybody else do that? Let's be honest. Anybody? Yes. Thank you. My people. Okay. Um, and how do you feel when it actually happens? I've seen it happen like once or twice. It's an amazing feeling as you're, <laughs> it really is. As you're coming, coming down the road and all of a sudden you see lights further up. Oh yes. Please be them. Please be them. Ha <laughs> ha. There they go. And there's something within me that wants to believe 
in a, in a Hinduistic principle called karma. There's something within me that wants to believe that their actions immediately triggered a balance in the universe. And where we get this is because we live in a culture that likes to appropriate spiritualism to explain things that are going on. It's really a lazy thing to do, not really digging into the deeper meanings of some of these principles, but the idea of karma is thrown around all over the place. We hear that left and right. We hear it in stuff like people referencing uh, uh, feng shui in their homes and how they want to put furniture around. It's this appropriation of of other uh, systems of faith with the purpose of trying to complete an idea of karma isn't even a... It's an irreverent, silly myth. That idea of karma isn't even a full idea of of what karma really is in the the Hindu religion, this idea of balance between uh, lives, how the things that we do in one life would affect another in in that, that belief system. So... That's a really big, broad idea of what an irreverent, silly myth would be, this, this intermingling of, uh, of spiritualism with Christian ideas to, to make something that makes us comfortable. I, I think of um, stuff like uh, when I was in middle school, the, these things were really popular, the, the spirit beads or, or whatever. Anybody remember these? These little bead bracelets that had different colors, and, and people believed that, hey, if I wear a blue one, it's going to make me peaceful. If I wear a red one, watch out. I don't know. I, 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 I didn't adhere to any of that. But this mixing of spiritualism with Christianity, Paul is saying, watch out for that. But the real danger comes in when it's not things that are nearly as obvious as like Buddhist or Hindu principles or anything like that, but more social ideas that become doctrinal truths in our hearts. That's where the danger comes in. Let me give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. One example would be, I face this with teenagers very often when it, when it comes to um, questioning um, boundaries uh, sexually in relationships. So what, what am I supposed to do? How far is too far is that question that often gets asked. Um, and and the, the question is flawed, um, really. It's not how far is too far, but where is your heart is, is really what it comes down to. But what that is saying is we have a cultural belief that sexual immorality has different levels of severity. Like if you do this in a relationship, it's not as bad as if you do this. And let's not even talk about if you do this. And so we've created these different levels of sexual morality, and, and that's a lie because Jesus himself made it very clear where the beginning of sexual immorality takes place in Matthew 5, 28, when he said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it, it, it's not that there are levels of sin, and yet that's what we believe socially. We believe that, that okay, as long as I don't do this, I'm okay. That's not what God says. God says it's a heart issue. It's a brokenness. And so we believe this myth that we are doing something right by avoiding something more bad. It's an irreverent, silly myth. It's not what God has called us to. Instead, The danger of that is that if we cross certain lines, we drown ourselves in shame. 
We, we start thinking, okay, I've, I was already doing bad stuff, but now I'm doing the really bad stuff? That's not it at all. Because the truth of the gospel is God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient that the cross covers all sin. And so our response is not to cower away and fall apart, but rather to fall on our face before the king with a heart of repentance. Whether the the sin, the crossing of sin happened because of an action or because of a thought. The response should be the same. That's not irreverent and silly. That's what Jesus said. Another irreverent, silly myth, and we could go on and on about these, would be something like, if I bring my kid to church, they're going to be okay. If, if I just bring them into these walls, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fix them. They're going to be all right. And I don't, I don't know if anybody actually says that, but, it, but our desire for routine can lead us to that. And we can qu- quickly become guilty of assuming that. I, I know I've been facing that. Um, Walt uh, has been talking more and more and more. It, it's, it's such an adorable thing. Um, he's on that stage of getting caught on one word and just sounding like a broken record. Uh, it's adorable. Um, and so Walt has started um, singing songs that he hears in his class. He started repeating the like, key lesson that he learns in his class. And so we, we didn't catch this, and all of a sudden he, was, he said, I'll be happy with what I have. Like, wait, what, what? Where'd you get that? And we pull out his little sheet that we, we get after we pick him up from uh, his class on Sunday morning. He's like, oh my gosh, he's learning! He's learning about Jesus! And so I can quickly think, I, can, I feel my heart pulling and saying, more of this, this is what he needs, and, and this is what will save my son, but that is not it at all. There's no building on this planet that saves our children. Only Jesus Christ saves our kids. And so the church does play a key role in providing knowledge and direction for young people that are needing to discover Christ. Bringing your kids to church is important, but it is not a doctrinal law. we, We can't start replacing or supplementing our faith with things that that just make us feel better. We, We need to adhere to the truth. Realize the tools that God has put in place, but not see them as the end all be all of our faith. Because the danger of myths like these is if we believe them and then they fail us, which they will, then we are likely to blame God and question him. Like, God, I brought my, my kid to church every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. I paid money for every single retreat and event, and this is how they're ending up. God, what are you doing? God, why am I such an emotional wreck? I, I didn't cross this line with this relationship with this girl. I didn't do this. Why, why is everything falling apart? Why is this doing such damage to my, my heart? And it's because... We are believing myths rather than truth. 
So how do we battle these myths? And it says it right there in that verse, training in godliness. Training in godliness. This word training that Paul uses here is gumnazo. I like saying Greek words, it's fun. Um, gumnazo, and it's the same uh, word, uh, root that we get gymnasium from. And it, it literally means to train in your loincloth. And I don't encourage you to take it literally, okay? All right? It, but that's what it literally means, to train your loincloth, but, but suggesting that train with intensity with nothing hindering you is what that means. Train with the intensity of an athlete. Um, I was at a student ministry conference last year, and there was a panel of athletes sharing their testimonies. It was, it was just wonderful. And one of the athletes was Brian Clay, and I think we have a picture of, of Brian in there. Brian Clay, if you don't know who he is, he won gold for the U.S. in the decathlon. Like, one of the greatest athletic events. Um, won the gold medal for the decathlon in the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and I get exhausted just thinking about the decathlon. I can't imagine going through one. He requires 10 events and being at peak levels of skill. In 2004, the 2004 Olympics, he got the silver, and that motivated him to four years of intense training. And what I remember most from talking about his training um, and how it applied to his faith was that what he said was that every day of his training was planned out for those four years. Every single day and sometimes down to the hour. So that if on one day you said, hey, Brian, two years from now, three months and four days, what will you be eating for lunch? And he could tell you. Because he knew every bit of his training. It was intense. He knew every exercise he would be doing. He would knew what rest would be like, how many hours he would be working, all of these things preparing him for the goal. And that level of commitment was all to reach the goal of achieving this gold medal. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have, have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe." See, Paul is saying staying physically fit, that's, that's important, but not nearly as important as pursuing godliness, of taking care of the direction of our hearts. We are talking about the good news of Jesus taking root in our hearts and being prepared to take it out and share it with others, extending God's kingdom. So what we're going to do today in the next um, just remainder of the time uh, here, what we're going to do is we're going to quickly go through the rest of this passage and see different areas we are called to train in godliness. And so 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 12 says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. 
So here's the first thing, this first idea of, of training. We need to live our life as an example to others. See, there's very few things that will motivate you to getting in shape than people looking at you. <laughs> That's why when people are looking to get fit, they, they will take a picture of themselves, the, the before picture, right? They have to see the before. Because if they don't see the before, they don't know the, the after. And, 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 and so they take a picture of the before and they post it somewhere nowadays, normally just on social media. And, and, and so the, this is the starting point. And so now they're living as this example of progress. If you want to train in godliness, let people see you. It's an incredibly motivating factor. Let people close enough to you to see the struggle, to see the battle, to see every step of this process. See, Paul was certainly speaking directly to Timothy, but he was also encouraging him to teach these things as much as do these things, to teach others. This idea of avoiding youthful passions is key for the, the uh, next generation to, to lead as an example in purity. But he's also as much as informing them to be an example in their actions, he's informed to be an example in their words, the things they say. For us today, that often means um, in whatever platform we communicate. And so the age that we're in right now, there's such a danger of, of ruining our platform for the gospel by um, speaking without thinking. On social media, or face-to-face -face or via text message, things can so quickly be misunderstood. And if we're not careful, we can really lose that platform. I was talking, um, I, I, was, I don't normally jump in on conversations on social media and, and really engage in that uh, for this specific reason, but there was a friend of mine from high school, and I haven't talked to him in quite a while, but I was just noticing honestly a lot of foolish talk. He's a believer in Christ, but he was just putting out a lot of foolish things um, that the, the listeners to his words were not going to be receiving that the way he wanted. Like he thinks he w is giving instruction, but really he's hardening hearts. And so I just asked him, I, I said, man, I feel like this platform uh, that, that you're, you're portraying is, is really ruining your opportunity to share the gospel. And he basically said back to me, it's important for them to realize that I'm right. I just want to say, no, it's not. It's important for them to know Jesus. It's important for them to know that you are a person of peace in their lives. Now, listen to me. I'm not suggesting that you change political and social opinions or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying but it's important to consider our audience. And I think that's why James um, uh, stated that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Because he realized the damage our words can do when we don't think about what our audience is about to receive. I am so incredibly guilty of this too often. So many times uh, just uh, my, my brain causes me to say things before I can really put that filter out there. <laughs> that, that is always incredibly tough for me. 
I wish I had said something better or, or, or with more tact, but that's why we need to be quick to listen. And so Paul is speaking this into Timothy's life, saying, if you're going to live by example, live by example in your speech and the way you conduct yourselves and how you love people and the purity you keep. So we have to live our lives as an example to others. Be willing to live our lives as an example to others. That's challenging. So many times we don't want people to see that close. So where do we find this example? We find it by studying and knowing God's word. And, and so he goes on in verse 13. Until I come, Paul says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to, to exhortation, and to teaching. So how else do we train in God, godliness? By studying God's word on our own and with others. That's so incredibly important because I think we get that we're supposed to study God's word. I think, I think we understand that. I think we, we know that and we, we feel like we need to do that more um, and, and we set personal reminders and stuff like that. But that with others is so incredibly important because that is where some exponential growth starts taking place when we hear the thoughts of our friends and our family we get accountability, we get encouragement. Encourage you to join a life group here at EBC. Join a Bible study. You can go on our website and find what's available. And uh, there's scattered schedules over the summer, but, but invest in that. There's a men's Bible study that meets on Saturday mornings. There's a women's Bible study that meets on Wednesday nights. You can grab a friend and meet with them for coffee and just discuss God's word. But don't be afraid of the messiness of it. I think so many times we're just like, but I I don't know enough to, to really discuss the Bible. Well, ask questions. You'll never begin to know unless we, we even go there. And so go and, and, and meet and, and take time as a family. Open up the Bible together and just read. At times it's going to be messy and there's going to be like, what? what was just said in there? But dig in, learn, ask questions together. Biblical literacy is a problem in the church. Yet we live in a time where the Bible has never been so available. It is so incredibly available to us. The fact that I can pull out a phone and I can get hundreds of languages. And then in English, I can get hundreds of versions of the Bible with just a click. And yet there's a study done by Lifeway that found that one in five Christians in America never read their Bible. Not just don't often, but never. Don't open it. On the flip side, the same percentage was on the other end that 20% said they read the Bible every day, which put 60% of Americans in the, of Christians in America somewhere in the, in the middle. And that isn't to say that the issue is just with those who are in the seats of the church. There was another study done that sh- showed that 25% of pastors, 25% of pastors say that they have a regular um, Bible reading devotion time. One in four? And we wonder why there's an issue with biblical literacy in the church. See, the issue isn't, um, it's not America, it's not um, you, it's not me, it's not the person sitting next to you. It's it's just a hard issue. And if we're going to train in godliness, we need to have a 
daily passion for the word. And so the tools are there, but we need to prepare our hearts. We need to have a heart's desire to put forth that effort to train hard and devote ourselves to the word. Let's take a look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when a council of elders laid hands on you. So clearly, this is a very personal message to Timothy. Paul knows of a giftedness that he has and a a, um, ceremony type of time that that this was brought forth and and he was instructed in. So very personal. However, the reminder to us is the same, that in training in godliness, we have to respond to God's personal call in our life. Respond to God's personal call in your life. Uh, Pastor and author uh, Newt Larson, he said this in one of his commentaries on this letter. He said, each Christian leader has been specifically gifted in some way by God for ministry. The peculiar ability is given for the benefit of the church. With the gift comes a God-exacted responsibility which cannot be shunned. Just love that. That with our giftedness is a God-exacted responsibility that we've been given. And so whether you are, are called to vocational ministry or not, it, that is beside the point God has created you with a giftedness for his kingdom. Every single one of you. There's not a person here that God said, nah, I forgot. You are not prepared to do anything for me, so you just sit on the side. No, God didn't do that. So no matter what your giftedness is in teaching or encouragement or serving or leading or mercy or, or whatever, your giftedness is a call to ministry. Your giftedness is a call to extend God's kingdom where God has placed you, to go where God has, is leading you and impact lives for the glory of his name like an athlete who sees their giftedness and leans on those strengths to accomplish their goal, we need to see what God has created us to do and act on it. And here's the last thing. We need to train with endurance. 1 Timothy 4, 15 through 16. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's the truth. This is a long road. This is a long road. We have a lifetime of trading ahead of us, and we are being called to a day-to-day dedication to God. God's word is very clear. Jesus said, pick up your cross daily. We, we, We have this call on our life to daily respond to him. And so it's important that we realize that our relationship with God is not a job. It's our life. It's a lifestyle. So our pursuit of godliness should be a daily pursuit. After all, salvation is this process that begins with being justified at conversion and saved by the grace of God. It ends with the glorification when we are united with Christ. But the process in between is us pursuing holiness, this process of sanctification where we are pursuing God daily, desiring to become more like Christ in person and behavior. 
here's the simple and plain truth. If we are going to train in godliness, we need Jesus. If you believe that, I just want you to say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Because the sooner we realize and surrender to that, that we realize that we need him. Like somebody who needs water to live. All of us. We need Jesus. We realize that we abandon our reliance on self and we realize we're called to something greater. That's what it means to train in godliness, this pursuit of Christ daily, making that effort. It safeguards us from the lies of the enemy, from irreverent, silly myths, and prepares us to teach and train others. What Paul's saying, the thing I wish I'd known was to train daily in pursuing God. That's what we can do. The change can start now. God is still ready to do amazing things in your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do need you. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of how much the rest of the world needs you. Humble us, Father, that we might see this desperation and be motivated to work hard and train in godliness, that we would long to to talk about your word and worship you, that we would use the ways you've gifted us to further your kingdom. And that, God, you would develop an endurance in us to pursue you every day. God, may we surrender to you And for the sake of your gospel, may we train in godliness with intensity and passion. Let's forget whether the, the time we've missed and just focus on now. Picking up now. And you show us the usefulness you find in us. we need you. So as we sing together, may that be our heart's cry. As we pursue godliness that we need to abandon self and God, we need you. In your name we pray. Amen.